Welcome to OneGreatMoment.com, a podcast clearinghouse for everybody's greatest stories. We've all got a tale to tell, and someday we'd love to hear yours. You can see our website for how that works. But here and now, in this moment, we're off to moment number two, the Birdman of Columbia. Enjoy your listen. Every once in a while, I'll take a walk up the ridge behind our house just to get a little perspective on things. I used to spend a lot of my time in lofty spots, but lately seem to be pretty comfortably settled in the valley. Today, for some reason, pushing a little faster than usual, I arrived on top breathing hard. I'm sure it was no coincidence that my thoughts ran to the old drive that used to get me into so many wild predicaments, usually in high places. The old drive. That nostalgia was startling, especially in view of my normal hesitance to admit that my days of youthful adventure may well be over. At any rate, future adventures won't be motivated by that pressing drive. Its disappearance, though hard to pinpoint, is certain. Drive always did have its weak spots, and I guess a delicate balance was finally tipped by sobering age. Ultimately, my incessant urge to push it to the, how you say, edge was outweighed by longings for the safety of home. Longings which I had invariably felt once the frightening edge had been approached anyway. This smug line of reasoning had me feeling quite grounded, even grown up, when a barely perceptible breeze drifted down from the ridge crest behind me. An entirely different line, even style of thought, must have been running close to the surface of my memory, because that breeze blew me away, again. Maybe the breeze had been quietly whispering all these years. It could have been the deaf ears. Or else it just took its time, like decades, to catch up. In either case, it filled memory like a balloon and set it free, carrying me back. I was off on a mental junket to the past. The wind, like the drive, was not always so gentle. December 74 found me on a rocky mountaintop looking out over the Caribbean listening quite attentively to the screams of a gale which came howling in wild gusts from three directions. Huge organ-pipe cacti were reaching out to grab me like spiny giant's hands should the efforts of my compatriot Jim fail to keep us anchored to the ground. His task was greatly exacerbated by the hang glider to which I was fastened. It would have been simple to unfasten had it not been for the presence on the beach far below of an entire regiment of Colombian infantry. They were waiting for me to jump. I hadn't asked for this. I had just wanted to fly what looked like a very promising sight, not commit myself to some kind of Cecil B. DeMille spectacle with a cast of thousands in army costume. Unfortunately, the desirable sight was located on a military base. I don't know, the general had said earlier when I appeared before him with my unusual request. How do I know you won't use that thing to fly drugs to Miami? I had assured them I couldn't quite cover the 1,100 miles by hang glider. And this was particularly true of the primitive kite I was flying back then, which offered little more than controlled descent. Usually a lot more descent than control. I then proceeded to regale him with a heartfelt, but undoubtedly overzealous explanation of my motives. In retrospect, I'm sure my rhetoric about the search for the ultimate intensity of experience, the airborne wilderness, and so on, were taken in a slightly different vein than I had intended. 
What I took for a fraternal glow in his eyes was more likely a twinkle of militaristic bravado, as he finally agreed, yeah, sure, go ahead. We'll be very interested to see this device in action. And where had this led? Together, Jim and I could hardly keep the kite from blowing backwards into the downwash of wind behind the mountain. This situation was definitely getting a little too ultimate. Only one thing to do, I yelled over the roar of flapping Dacron. Let's get out of here. Jim nodded. We folded it up in a hurry, scrambled down the far side of the mountain, and hitched back into Santa Marta. No small trick for two gringos with a 17-foot package. Early the next morning, we were quietly out of town and off to the safe anonymity of Bogota. I don't know that I'd do any better today at explaining the driving force behind my inclination to get into such situations, although I'm sure I'd be a lot more cynical about the general's interest. It's easy enough to be disparaging about my own idealistic objectives. But the fact is that back then a skepticism about whether it was possible at all to communicate so-called peak experiences ranked up there with the rest of my motives for taking it to the edge in the first place. You just had to stop talking and go for it. In any case, that feeling in the guts and the perspective that comes with it as you launch from an unflown mountaintop with the wind sucking you skyward like an express elevator were not what we were finding in Bogota. From an earlier visit, I had retained a strong impression of Mount Monserrati looming over the city with a cable car leading right to the top of its 2,000-foot drop and a beautiful grassy slope for takeoff. But a reconnaissance trip to the peak with the wind gauge and slope indicator had shown two possible landing spots, the center strip of a main boulevard and the busiest plaza in town. So much for that ultimate mountain. We were reduced to lurking about watching 40-cent movies and eating one-peso pastries. At least all was not lost. It was beginning to look grim, however. Ours was not a big-budget expedition, and cheap travel in South America exacts a high psychic toll. Our progress south in search of soaring perfection was severely hampered by the very instrument of flight itself. Although the kite had been chosen for its ability to break down into an eight-foot length, even that was an easy mark for bus drivers who were always on the lookout for gringo tourists with a weakness. Of course, we developed countering tactics, the toe under the scales, or maybe a JFK half-dollar for the driver. But even our most effective propaganda, photos of the unheard-of glider in flight, along with descriptions of ourselves as everything from kamikaze pilots to astronauts, was often futile. The prospect of travel's constant battle made it easy to stay in Bogota. Daily, we committed ourselves to action manana. Eventually, manana could be delayed no further, and we were off to a hill we had spotted south of town. The kite was full length again, sticking out the emergency door of the bus as we roared out of town with Virgin Mary's rattling and the horn repeatedly blaring the first two measures of the bridge over the river Kwai. Screaming along at 80 miles an hour, we begged the driver to let us off near our hill. Two miles too late, he stopped, charging us the fare to a town 50 miles further down the road. We cursed at him in English, some satisfaction, reasonably safe, and hopped out. An hour of trudging through hot, dusty fields brought us to the foot of a hill no bigger than the one I had learned on. Sure looked bigger from the road. Yeah, sure did. We're here. Might as well fly. Might as well fly. Upon return to the top from the second brief flight, we noticed an unusual procession coming up the back of the hill. Three young men were dragging a body toward us. 
They eventually arrived and dropped their sputtering burden at our feet. I speak English. I speak English. I die from climb. The body's compatriots, looking embarrassed, explained that he wasn't used to exertion and that he was a little drunk as well. But since he'd once been to New York City, he wanted us to be his guests for dinner. Eyeing the car in the distance, we accepted enthusiastically. A few hours later, all hopes for a ride home evaporated as our friend whipped himself into a frenzy bullfighting with his dog and passed out on the floor, this time for good. It was the cruel highway once again. The image I retain of myself in those days includes a healthy ration of youthful resilience, but I remember it waning as we hid the kite in a ditch and flagged down a bus. Jim hopped in the front and occupied the driver as I opened the emergency door and shoved the thing on. Out came the PR photos, and the befuddled passengers were soon won over to our side. Together we overruled the driver, and off we went. Hanging on by the back door and drowning in diesel fumes, Jim muttered something about the airborne wilderness. It was a long walk from the bus station to the hotel, and even at midnight the streets were crowded, but the energy to con another cab driver just wasn't there. We tried to stem the tide using the kite as a ramrod and gradually made our way through the endless questions toward the safety of our room. At least we didn't have to worry about our burden's susceptibility to Bogota's notorious pickpockets. Then, from the depths of the crowd, we heard a voice in almost flawless English saying, Hey, isn't that a hang glider? Less than half a day later, we were surrounded by a real rarity in Latin America. People who had enough time, money, and education to appreciate the pursuits we North Americans called recreation. Here were men and women who didn't question an individual's need to hurl himself off a cliff in the pursuit of happiness. They didn't ask questions we couldn't answer. They just took us to a spectacular, unflown ridge near Bogota and drove us to the top. Hard times were forgotten as our new friend Pedro, a pilot for a major airline, led us into a whirlwind of fame and glory. Before we knew what had hit, I was on the front page of Colombia's major daily in full color. Hombre Pajaro, Birdman in Colombia. I was above all this, of course, a purist of sport. Flying was my discipline, cosmic recreation. Yet looking at the photos years later, I can't quite seem to find my tongue in my cheek. The roll soon overtook me and we were flying high. Every flight brought droves of onlookers who attributed near-magical powers to this grinning gringo with wings, the likes of which they had never seen. The area's agriculture was seriously disrupted as the Birdman wrought joyous havoc among the surprised workers in his landing fields. Ultimately, the craze reached its peak, and I found myself ready to soar a beautiful ridge towering over pastoral farms, one of which belonged to the ex-president of the Republic. At that point, things began to develop in a manner of which I really should have been quite suspicious. It turned out that the approach to this flight coincided with the route of a popular religious pilgrimage. I was soon bent under my load, struggling upward past seven altars, each larger than its predecessor. Unspeakable delusions ran through my mind as a bright sun glinted off the huge metallic cross on the summit. At that time, I didn't equate the difficulty in donning my helmet with a swollen head, but it may have been a factor. I hardly noticed a 150,000-volt power line strung between the two-step takeoff area and the landing fields, although I did notice a crowd of ant-like people on the President's veranda. But that fit right in with the altars and sunward procession of pure white wings. Politicians would stand humbled before such loftiness. Pedro was holding the nose wires. 
The roar of 20 knots in the sail brought back a monicum of good sense, but that quickly disappeared with the quiet hiss of flight. The power lines were soon far below, and I found myself soaring directly above the muted cheers of the mortals down at El Presidente's. Something inappropriate began to appear down there, however. Small puffs of smoke. For a short time, I was able to maintain my area detachment until the small puffs in the distance became large and very loud, right at my wingtips. Begging for a ceasefire, I pulled the control bar all the way back in an attempt to gain enough airspeed to dive through the bursting skyrockets. Although successful, this maneuver had the undesirable side effect of bringing me perilously near skyrocket hood myself, but the real god smiled and the power line slid by close below. By that time, however, very little altitude was left to plan for landing, which led to a couple of broken tubes and a speedy return to humility. We quickly found a more secular flying area with less Independence Day fervor. Along with it came a drainage ditch, a broken hand, and a retreat to Ecuador for recovery. Surely the ultimate breeze would be blowing just a little further south. Through no fault of my own, I didn't break many body parts during the driven years. But I have noticed a definite change in perspective when damaged. It seems to be particularly true if the wounds are self-inflicted since motives are then called into question. This certainly figured in the unusually lucid state I attained on the bus south of Quito. That 20-hour ride on the corrugated mud Panamericano is probably best described as a cross between a sensory deprivation tank and a KGB interrogation room. It was 2 a.m. in Rio Bamba when the Atavala and Indian family got on and my heightened state really began to accelerate. The only time the one-year-old next to me was not sitting or stepping on my broken hand was when her mother got up to feed the three-year-old in the seat just ahead of us. Even today I find myself wondering why she thought it wise to feed the boy, although it did seem to increase the percentage of vomit he was able to target out the window instead of having it blow back on us. The comedy of the situation is more accessible in a historical framework. At the time, my mind experiencing an embryonic weak moment was centered on one thought. Why? It was into this complete self-absorption that Jim commented from the next seat back. What we need is a goal. I didn't respond. I didn't even move. I really felt myself to be on the verge of understanding why we put ourselves in these situations. If I could figure that out. There's got to be some place down here that's just waiting to be flown, Jim continued. In an instant, my carefully woven net of logic collapsed and purpose was restored. I knew just where we had to go next. Nazca. It was unbelievable that we hadn't been headed there all the time. The plains of Nazca, an empty desert covered by huge figures etched in the sand. Supposed by the imaginative to be pre-Columbian beacons for ancient astronauts. For 2,000 years, they had silently been waiting for someone to arrive from above. How could we refuse? It was our duty to make that flight. Anyway, it was only 30 more hours on the bus. The expected 30 hours were a breeze. The next 30 were tougher. There was a revolution on in Peru, and it's not easy to explain a heavy case full of aluminum tubing to a fascist colonel who was watching his government crumble. So we spent a couple of unexpected nights on the road and finally arrived in Lima just before curfew with the town full of tanks. Don't mind us, we're just the bird men, we explained. They didn't get it. The bald tires rolled on and on, and we finally arrived in Nazca, only to find yet another setback, this one a heartbreaker. The place was beautiful, with huge dry mountains rising above a vast, expansive desert. 
but a little bit of investigation led to a dismaying conclusion. Beginning just before dawn, there was a constant downdraft off the mountains. Local power pilots confirmed it as a seasonal trend, with three months of season remaining. My aeronautical knowledge was limited, but the import of downdrafts for a kite was plenty clear. Sink is the dark mood of the sky. We directed our drive to the beach to analyze our goal. Procrastination led us conveniently to tangents we could never have imagined. But then, that seemed to be the agenda on this trip. The lack of lift at Nazca was more than compensated for down the road in Marcona, where we quickly became the resident flying circus for the continent's largest strip mine. Downdrafts and setbacks were put aside. We were living free and in a style way beyond that to which we had ever been accustomed. The compromise involved in working for the mine gave us pause. Compromise, like drive, was a larger factor then. But hey, miners need entertainment too, and all that was required were two flights per weekend. Ethics took a backseat to soaring on the same winds as huge condors and drinking free American beer in the country club. Of course, there's no such thing as free beer. The winds in Marcona reached 50 knots by 10 a.m., and that's way past time to fold up a kite. On the other hand, miners don't like to get up early on their day off, so I let myself be talked into doing a flight later than we should have. What's more, it was off a 2,800-foot ridge with a turbulent wind coming in at a most undesirable 45-degree angle. When the time came, it was only blowing 25 on top, so we agreed to try it and hurried to set up. The wind was up to an unsteady 30 knots by the time things were ready, and all of a sudden, ethics became paramount. I really shouldn't be doing this. I'm condoning the rape of the planet, I stated emphatically. Maybe so, Jim retorted. You're also full of crap. Shall I let go of the wires? He was right, and I was off, with a jerk that almost snatched my hands from the control bar. It was apparent right away that it was going to be a wild flight. The wind rolling down the ridge provided only spotty lift, even though the forces knocking the glider about were far greater than I'd ever seen. Don't be macho, I kept telling myself. Keep the speed up and get it over with. But it was a long ridge and the minutes were ticking by. Halfway along, my arms were beginning to burn out from fighting the turbulence. I glanced at my watch. Five minutes. It seemed a lot longer. I was flying as fast as possible and there still didn't seem to be any ground speed. Finally, the ground closed in and the miners got bigger, but they seemed to be walking away. No such luck. I was flying backwards. None too soon, the kite and the ground met with me scampering somewhere backwards in between. The glider slammed down under the wind, which had risen to gusts of 35 knots. Drifting sand buried the nose. It had been by far the most physical flight I'd ever made, and the combination of residual adrenaline and cold beer forced self-doubt into the background. The talk in the club veered towards goals and limits, and by mid-afternoon, a crowd of well-wishers saw us off. We were in a dune buggy, bound for Nazca. Unfortunately, the adrenaline wore off before the beer, and dusk found us stumbling up a steep scree slope on the largest of the Nazca ridges. The great figures were barely visible in the dim light, but their presence was awesome. It was dark, except for the stars, when we finally arrived on top and cleared a little area in which to bivouac. But no sooner had we settled into our bags than a glow began to show over the higher mountains behind us. So much time had been spent in cities on this trip that we had completely lost track of the phase of the moon, but there it was. 
as it inched up over the horizon, a line of moonlight moved towards us across the desert floor thousands of feet below. Huge fish, spiders, and geometric figures were slowly revealed, as if by the drawing of a miles-long curtain of light. Rod Serling, the original narrator of the Twilight Zone, called it one of the most mysterious spots on Earth, and he ought to know. It was hard to believe that humans could even have sustained themselves in this rainless desolation, let alone have created something of this scope, and I thought free flight was an eloquent expression of human nature. The view's always best from the edge, isn't it, I asked, largely to myself. Jim lay back down in his bag, looking skyward. Yeah, it is. I just hope I'm always willing to pay the price of admission, he replied, never knowing how long an echo that comment might have. After a long silence, we got to talking about the supposed purpose of the Nazca lines. The usual thin veil of cynicism covered our discussion of whether the spacecraft for which the lines were drawn might not just cruise in that night and steal our glory, or us. Every shooting star brought silence, followed by a short chuckle. Still awake, eh? The following morning, however, we woke too late, the downward breeze already blowing. Sink. I sank back into bed, a motion I was less familiar with back then. The scene was startling in the daylight. Unknowingly, we had camped almost on top of an ancient fire pit. Perhaps this was where the Nazca came to gain perspective on their drawings. Jim chuckled about fire pits and human sacrifice. I thought about perspective and the edge. Finally, nervous laughter got us both moving and we began to set up the kite. It was soon apparent that the winds were picking up, or actually down. Hurrying to find a takeoff spot, all we could see anywhere near the edge was steeply sloping loose gravel. Beyond that, a vertical cliff dropped off for about 500 feet before easing off. One of my chief attractions to hang gliding has always been the degree of commitment necessary at takeoff. Cliff launch is the very best example of this, a true leap of faith. Through running, enough speed and thrust have to be developed to carry the tail over the edge. Only then can the glider be put into a dive and accelerated to a speed at which it actually begins to fly. I'd probably logged more cliff launches than compromises up to that point in life, but my distaste for the latter made the former all the more exhilarating. There is no compromise at launch time. It's either wholehearted or a disaster. The Nazca downdraft doubled the odds. The larger it got, the more speed and running room I'd need to clear the edge. But the more time we spent clearing rocks, the more the sink increased. A vicious circle. There was obviously no future in delay. Jim suggested backing off, but I'd hear nothing of it. Somehow it all appeared so significant. This was why we were here. The whole journey seemed focused on a moment. This was the edge. The takeoff photo shows the tail clearing the edge by inches. I only remember the memory. The flight itself was almost anticlimactic. Made brief by the smooth, sinking air, it led to an uneventful landing in a line meticulously cleared of rocks hundreds of years ago. Incredibly, I was surrounded by prehistoric pot shards, probably of great value, but they were inconsequential. I unclipped from my wing and sat down heavily. The takeoff was still crystal clear and still locked in slow motion, every detail a single frame. The downdraft had increased again the instant I had taken the first step. I would have given anything to be able to stop, but the takeoff area was too steep and the gravel too loose. 
All I could do was put the nose down and hurl myself through the sink. It had been so close. The slight breeze roared. So today I sit on a gentler ridge being stirred by the breeze again. It's almost as if this breeze is as much older as I, its sound appropriately subdued. But once more I can feel a little potential rush that it offers. Once more I seem to be listening. Looking down at my cozy home in the valley, feel a warmth which tells me that the drive, like the impact of the wind, has diminished. But another motive has surfaced, subtly compelling. I've got to admit that the perspective is better from up here on top, and I'll bet it would be even better from just a little bit higher still. It took a lot of years for that breeze to catch up to me, but it seems that it might easily catch me up again. I may let myself get carried away. The music is what makes this all work. A big thanks to PodsafeAudio.com and the following artists. David Henderson, Gringo Motel, Uma Floresta, Musicos Unidos de Latino America, and the Steve Red Band. Thanks for listening.